Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Well, good morning, friends. Go ahead and grab a seat if you'd like. We're delighted you're here. Thank you all. It's so great. Hey, um, good morning. My name's Mike. Welcome to our community. If you're new, uh, we're fans of flip-flops. Jesus wore them. Um, we, we think they should be worn. We think that when, when it says nice. remove, nice it is nice, but even if it weren't, my friend, in defiance of the weather, when, when, when God tells Moses, remove your sandals for where you were standing is holy ground, you can't do that with tennis shoes, guys. That's, that, you're, it's in violation. So anyway, my name's Mike, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you needed that introduction. Um, I have a question to start us off by way of review. We're in a series of conversations called The Upside Down Kingdom, and this is concerning really the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's five, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And by way of review, John, I need you focused right here. Okay, I know you're sitting next to three babes, and it's tough to focus, but right here. The babe up here is where I need you looking. All right, now, what, in one sentence, what is the core message of Jesus? We've been covering it for weeks now. Yes. Yes. A wise man is hard to find, but here we found one. Yes. Now, does that ring a bell with anybody? The core message of Jesus is this one. Go ahead, Nick, throw up 417. Up on the screen, my friend, go ahead. Oh, it's not up on mine. Nice. Oh. Oh. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And observations we've made along the way. Notice the direction of the kingdom of heaven. It's coming towards us. It's not us coming towards it. Notice the kingdom of heaven is the same thing as kingdom of God. It's the same uh, idea. And, it's, it, and, and the question the Old Testament leaves us with isn't, how is God going to forgive all these sinners? The question the Old Testament ends with is, when will God come back and reclaim his world? starting with the nation of Israel. So the kingdom of God is that promise that Yahweh himself is returning to his people and his temple in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. And that proclamation, reconsider the way of living that you've been using, you know, the mode of life that you've been following up until now, reconsider that mode of life because God's new thing is here in the form of Jesus. Now, what does that mean when God takes charge? Well, for some of us, um, that is a kind of a suspicious saying, right? The idea of God taking charge, at least based on some of our experiences with church and Christian folks, is not a healthy, positive experience. But in this instance, we get an explication of what that means in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It begins with Jesus just pronouncing blessing on the, the people, the crowds that had gathered who were not the religious elite of Israel, and, and announcing that the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams was upon them in his person, and that they were honored by being, uh, by being uh, approached with the kingdom first. 
And that that whole tribe of messy and weak and sick people, they were going to fulfill the vocations of salt and light. And then out of that, Jesus begins to critique the program of the Pharisees. And the big thesis verse that we've been working hard to understand is this one here in uh, 520. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your justice, righteousness and justice are the same word, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that was kind of upsetting news because the Pharisees and the teachers were known for their righteousness. They'd taken the 613 commandments and they'd added hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations up and over and above them just to protect. So it was called fencing the law. So if one of the laws was, one of the Ten Commandments was do not touch the table, the Pharisees would then add commands that would be like, okay, don't be near the table. Don't be in the same room with the table. Only, in, only come into the table with three other people, right? So they would add these regulations in their zeal to obey the law. So when Jesus says to this misfit crowd and these day laborer disciples, hey guys, your righteousness has to surpass that of the religious elite. That was kind of crushing news, but Jesus goes on to illustrate what he means. And if you remember, he's taking light commands and heavy commands and showing that the rightness of his kingdom is a rightness of the heart, not just of external conformity to rule. So it's not just enough in his kingdom to not murder. In his kingdom, anger and contempt have to be dealt with too. It's not just enough to not commit adultery. We have to deal with lust and coveting. All right, all of that is reviewed. Does it sound familiar? Unless you're new. In which case you're like, man, I'm glad I haven't been here yet. Um, so today, Jesus, Jesus is on a roll. Anger, lust, and now divorce. It's just awesome. So just, he's light, he's fluffy, he's chipper. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's from Deuteronomy 24. We'll get to that in a second. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Cool. Let's close in prayer. Let's take the offering and giddy up. Right? So a bunch of things to start. Here's some disclaimers. Number one, um, this is a very tender topic for some of us. Some of us are the products of divorced homes. Some of us uh, have been divorced ourselves. Some of us have been stigmatized for being divorced. Uh, some of us have, um, we're, we're married, but my goodness, that, that the divorce option looks pretty attractive some days, right? We're, we're all over the map on this. And it's super important that we go over all the background to remind ourselves that Jesus here is giving illustrations of the deeper rightness of his kingdom, all right? And he's doing it in really some surprising ways. So if you would, just... It's going to be about 15 minutes of really tough background, all right? Because when we read divorce and what Jesus meant by divorce are two entirely different things, all right? Then we'll come back. Well, there's another passage in Matthew where Jesus talks about this more extensively, and we'll get to that, all right? So look at me. Questions are welcome. 
And, um, and we're going to do lots of Old Testament background. Are you ready? All right, giddy up. All right, there are two laws that concern divorce in the Torah. Uh, the first one starts, uh, the first one is in Exodus. So let's go to Exodus 21, um, and, um, and we'll start there. Now, the Bible, and we're going to do a whole series on the Bible in August, because a lot of us, at least for me, a lot of us misunderstand what the Bible's trying to do and accomplish. When we get to these laws, this isn't God's ideal will for humanity. This is triage. God's ideal will was Genesis 1 and 2, right? So like, take polygamy. So Genesis 1 and 2, for a man, singular, will leave his family and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That was the ideal, was one man, one woman in a covenant. But, you know, immediately in Genesis, all of a sudden now we have all sorts of patriarchs marrying multiple wives. So what does God do in a situation where even the people who are following him have settled for something that was suboptimal? Well, he gives laws to limit the fallout of polygamy, right? So when people say, hey, the biblical ideal of marriage you know, is just a mess, and here are all these examples of marriages. Yes, what I love about the scriptures, it includes the mess of human life and human failure. But so often the laws that we stumble over are triage, invitations for people in, as God finds them to take a step forward towards holiness. Make sense? Yeah, well, we'll talk more about that because I can feel you going, hmm, that's interesting. Jesus himself will say this later about divorce. So proof is coming. Now, in Exodus 21, even though the ideal was one man, one woman, one lifetime, polygamy was the reality. And so we get a law that limits the fallout about polygamy. Exodus 21, verse 10. Uh, let's see here. If a man, a servant, marries another woman, so he's already married and he adds a second wife, he must not deprive the first one of what? Food and and we all know what is being referred to there, correct? See last week. All right, now. Now, and it's a very straightforward command. If you are going to walk outside of the ideal, then God requires you not to set aside your first, your first wife in order to marry a second. So you still have to provide her with food, clothing, marital rights. Now, Food, clothing, and marital rights, because of the emphasis of Exodus 21, became the basis of the vows that you would make in Jewish weddings. Even when God divorces his people, later on in the Old Testament, he talks about how you didn't eat the food that I gave you, you didn't shelter under my wings, and you pursued other intimate relations with other idols. The idea is that food, clothing, marital rights was the bare minimum that a, a husband needed to provide his wife. And then notice, if he does not provide her with these three things, she is what? She's to go free. What's that mean? She's not bound by that marriage. And by the way, without payment of money. There were circumstances where you would actually have to buy yourself out of a marriage, and this is not one of those. All right, are you with me so far? Exodus 21, pretty straightforward. But I want you to know by Jesus' day, Exodus 21 was the basis of the vows that you would make 
uh, to each other on your wedding day. Food, shelter, marital rights. With me so far? Fantastic. This one is awful. Deuteronomy 24. All right? This one is ridiculous. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. Next. And if after she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, next, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. All right, how's that, how's that sounding? Totally straightforward, right? So the idea... Moses, again, God is dealing with the reality of human life. This is not God's will. We'll see Jesus refer to this in just a second. But Moses is saying, listen, if you provide a certificate of divorce. Now let's talk about a certificate of divorce. A certificate of divorce was a legal document signed in front of two witnesses that removed the charge of adultery from being levied against the man. All right? It was, and levied against the woman too, but differently. So the idea was, like when, Mar when, when Mary's pregnant and Joseph has in mind to divorce her quietly, what that means is they were going to go into a room with two other people, he was going to write her a certificate of divorce, and then he would have divorced her. That's quiet divorce, all right? And the certificate, part of the certificate, we have examples of these, are, would include the idea that you are free now to remarry whoever you wish. All right? Now, the setting of Deuteronomy 24 is, okay, if a man finds his wife displeasing and finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce, if she marries another and he writes her a certificate of divorce, the first man cannot remarry her because he's already sent her away. All right? That's the command. And if you're like, dude, that's really weird. Yes, yes. We're not dealing, we're dealing with triage. We're not dealing with ideal God's will here. The idea, the questions <laughs> soon became, okay, so you can divorce your wife. But then there are two words that are really weird in this passage. Go ahead and put those up. Two questions. What does it mean for the husband to be displeased? Does that mean with anything? Like if she burns the food? If she's perpetually late to social engagements, if she doesn't like sports, I mean, what, what is that, what does displeasing mean? And then second, what is the matter of indecency? What is that? Right? And so, uh, now stick with me. This is so important. The, the, the matter of indecency, that phrase is only, is only used here in all of ancient Hebrew. Not just in the Bible, but anywhere. All right? So it is this strange, technical, legal phrase. Look at me. Don't check out. This is so important. All right? Because it matters. Hold on. Buckle up. Matter of indecency is this strange Hebrew phrase that we find nowhere else in ancient Hebrew literature. So, of course, what do you do when you find a phrase and you're not quite sure what it means? You debate it. 
So in Jesus' day, this is what rabbis would do, in Jesus' day, there were two different schools of thought among the Pharisees about what it meant to be displeasing and what was the matter of indecency. All right? Pay attention. Next slide. Shammai. All right? Rabbi Shammai took his cue about what is indecent mean from Exodus 21. Exodus 21 covered food, shelter, clothing. He took the conservative, stricter view that said that something indecent only meant something sexual. Makes sense. Rabbi Hillel, very famous, took his understanding about what it meant for something to be indecent from the word displeasing. And so he understood this verse to say you could write your wife a certificate of divorce for any and every reason, anything that displeased the man. So we have examples of later rabbinical writings of literally a woman burnt a piece of bread and was given a certificate of divorce. Or if she was displeasing to the eye as she aged, she was given a certificate of divorce. All right, so Exodus 21 Provide food, shelter, and clothing if you marry another, okay? And if not, you're free to go. Deuteronomy 24 was really a, a law about remarriage. If you've divorced once, you don't get to remarry this, the same person that's been divorced, that you divorced in the first place. You must provide a certificate of divorce. Now, the natural question was, okay, well, what does that mean, and when can we do it? Shammai taught only do it in cases of sexual infidelity the conservative view. And Hillel taught for any and every reason, anything that causes you to be displeased, you can divorce her. Are you with me so far? Any questions on all of this? Right? This is ridiculous, I know. It would be way easier just to hear about three easy steps to knowing God's will to your life. But this, this is the good stuff, ladies and gentlemen. Now, one more complicated passage, Matthew 19. So this is after the Sermon on the Mount, and here we get a much fuller discussion that Jesus engages in about the Pharisees and about divorce, with the Pharisees about divorce, all right? Some Pharisees came to test him. Is test him a good thing? No. It's like, um, so I've applied to different church jobs, and you will always have an interview that goes like, hey, what's your view on this? What's your view on hell? And you will give your view on hell, and if that's acceptable to them, then you'll progress. What's your view on sexuality? What's your view on, so, so that's what it means to be tested. So the Pharisees are testing Jesus' orthodoxy around an important question, all right? And here's the question. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now look at me. Who believed that you could divorce for any and every reason? Hillel did. So they're asking him his theological take on Hillel. They'd be like, if you asked me, hey, what's your view on hell? Do you believe everyone's saved? Do you believe in eternal conscious torment? Or do you believe people are annihilated? This is the exact same equivalent of asking a heavy theological question. Hey, what's your view on the Hillel interpretation of Deuteronomy 24? Is it lawful to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Next. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Next. 
And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, do you see what he's done? They portrayed Deuteronomy 24 as God's ideal for marriage. He comes back with Genesis 1 and 2. And, and this phrase, haven't you read? So he's talking to teachers of the law. Of course they have read. But he's like, come on, guys. You know De- Deuteronomy 24 was not God's original intention for this thing we call marriage. It was Genesis 1 and 2. Right? So he quotes it back at him. Then they quote Deuteronomy 24 at Jesus. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? All right, do you see the rabbis going at it right now? This is awesome. This is what they do all the time. They're quoting Bible back, to, back and forth to each other. Jesus replied, Moses didn't command you to give your wife a certificate of divorce, but he permitted you to do that. Because why? Your heart, your evil hearts were hardened. Was that God's ideal? Not even remotely. God's ideal was Genesis 1 and 2. But because of the hardness of human hearts, there are times that women must be free to leave a marriage. He did this because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, whose view is that? There's Hillel and Shammai. That's the Shammai view, correct? So Jesus just isn't ropping, ropping, dropping random divorce teaching in the middle of nowhere. He's actually debating the meaning of a verse. Do you see that? Come on, give, talk to me. Do you see it? Okay, you may be bored out of your mind. That's fine. But just do you see it? Yes. Now, so, so what are the Pharisees? So, so this is, they come to test him. Hey, what's your view on Hillel? Now, most of the Pharisees, let me, let me ask you, in a patriarchal culture, if you had a bunch of rabbis telling you you could divorce your wife for any and every reason, and another rabbi saying you could never divorce your wife at all unless he was sexually unfaithful, which view are you naturally going to gravitate to? Right, so most of the Pharisees agreed with Hillel. So they come up and they're like, hey Jesus, what do you think of Hillel when it comes to the topic of divorce? And Jesus is like, dude, Deuteronomy 24 is an accommodation. It's not the ideal. Genesis 1 and 2 is the ideal. Yeah, but what about Deuteronomy 24? Doesn't Moses command? No, Moses didn't command you. He permitted you because your hearts are hard. It was never God's intention to be that way from the beginning. And then he quotes the Shammai view. Now notice what the disciples say. The disciples are shocked by this. The disciples said to them, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> That's how whacked out this view was. What? If I can't divorce her for any reason, I guess I shouldn't be married. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Now, so when we get to Matthew 5, And Jesus sort of just says, you know, he just says whatever he says. Can you put Matthew 5 back up there real quick? Yeah, he says what he says. I know I'm throwing Nick curveballs left and right. I'll go to my Bible. I got, there it is. Nope. 
the 20 whatever, the 30, the 31. So when we get to Matthew 5, 31, and then he says, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Right? That's the idea for any and every cause. So that's the hello view. Next. But I tell you the Shammai view. Now, the audience would have known this, and that's why he doesn't expand on it. You know, we, we're spun out into a thousand, like, what does this mean? But that was just like a Twitter thread or a Twitter beef, you know, online or something. This was just, you know, the at Pharisees. Hey, what do you think about Rob Bell's view on divorce? At Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Son of God, replies... I'm a John Piper fan. I mean, yeah, I mean, it would just be that. I'm so, so sorry. I'm in a great mood, and this is a heavy topic. So it's tough to reconcile those two things together. Now, are there any questions on the exegesis of all of this? Yes, thank you. What? Cam! Okay, you, you, your first week was in the front row. Okay, yeah, I, don't, I don't want to read into any, anything, but... <laughs> Yeah, go ahead, Cam. Boy, that's a great question. I personally think there is, although the text doesn't specifically say. There, not shocking, Cam. What a great question. There was a massive double standard here. Now, we do have one example from ancient history of a woman, maybe, maybe more than that, maybe two or three, of a woman writing a certificate of divorce to the man. But the vast majority of the time in Jewish culture, it was the man initiating. So I absolutely think he's talking to men here. Absolutely. And we'll get to why in just a second. That's a great question. Anything else you, you want to talk about? All right, this is exegesis. We'll get to implications. Yes, Yes. Uh, well, the Exodus 21 was actually, believe it or not, both of these laws, Exodus and Deuteronomy, were advances compared to the practices of the neighbors of the Israelites. So they both protected women. The certificate of divorce protected a woman from being accused of being adulterous, and the, the food, shelter, uh, marital rights protected women in case the husband remarried somebody who he liked better. So I know that's hard to see, but compared to the other ancient Near Eastern neighbors, this was progressive for its day. Great. Anything else? One more. Awesome. Oh, yes. Yes. It is. First of all, you have a great haircut. Second of all, <laughs> second of all, you're absolutely right. He's saying, listen, the light and heavy thing that we've been looking at is different here because what he's juxtaposing is a, a heavy or a, um, a view that he considered light, which was Hillel view, Hillel's view, with the view he considered heavy and the authoritative one, which was Shammai's. Absolutely. So insightful. All right, now, let's talk implications, all right? Because 
well, what does this mean for us exactly? And, and what about divorced people today? And, and so on. There are two, two major views with tons of iterations of divorce and remarriage in Christian culture. The first one is, hey, divorce and remarriage is only permitted um, in the case of sexual infidelity. And then there's a lot of debate about what, what constitutes that. There's another view that says, no, no, no. Um, Exodus 21 is never repudiated by Jesus. Jesus never talks about it. And so you, and then Paul also adds, like, if your unbelieving spouse dies, you're free. So there are some, and I'm in this camp, that would argue that um, the permissible grounds for divorce include desertion, abandonment, and betrayal. Certainly abuse, we would all agree. Um, And so, so it's funny how the debate today represents and is, is still pretty tied to the debate of yesteryear. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, and again, the goal isn't for you to agree with me. Not at all. The goal is to provoke a whole bunch of conversation and drive you to the text. But that, when we would just throw that divorce quote around, there's a whole backstory that we don't do justice to. And we've, we can really use that to harm people and stigmatize people, and we just, we just want to repent of that way of approaching this. Jesus is actually offering his, his interpretation of a technical legal phrase. He's not talking about theology of divorce as it applies to all people everywhere. And that's where I think Exodus 21 does come into play. So a couple of, a couple of thoughts. Number one, who does Jesus' view protect? Say it louder. Women. Right? Hillel said you can divorce him for any and every reason. What's Jesus say? Nope. (laughs) Nope. In fact, you think a certificate of divorce will protect you from being accused of adultery. I tell you, you can write all the certificates you want. But unless there's infidelity, you're still married in the eyes of God. And that's why the disciples go, whoa! Maybe it's just better to stay single at that point. Now, Jesus, and and here's the big thing to realize. Jesus is still talking about adulteries, right? He's not actually doing two examples. He's talking about one example adultery and redefining it in ways that remove the double standard about lust and the double standard around divorce. And in both cases, he is elevating and protecting women and calling men, and he realizes, of course, that women struggle with all of this too, but men are traditionally the ones who weaponize these things, that, that men have to be called to account for their own views of marriage. Because the Pharisee view of marriage was, if, if divorce means, well, if she does anything displeasing, what's the view of marriage underneath that? What's her job? To please me. She exists for me. So, and if she displeases, all I have to do is write her a certificate of divorce. And I'm good. I'm not committing adultery. And Jesus speaks a hard word against that by saying, no, 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 no. It's Genesis 1 and 2 that are the issue. It's not Deuteronomy 24. That was a concession. That's an accommodation to how ridiculously hardened our hearts can be. Are you with me so far? So you have to see this. He's still talking about adultery like he was last week and is redefining adultery to include coveting and inappropriate divorce. Both of these redefinitions protect women. With me so far? This is a very, very important deal. 
In my observation, the Christian church has done one of two things with divorce and remarriage in the community of disciples. It's either been don't ask, don't tell, so it's just, we're not ever going to talk about it, we're not ever going to make it an issue, or it's, oh, do ask, do tell, and then if you have been divorced, we're going to put you through like church discipline. Right? It's either just ignoring the issue altogether, or it's stigmatizing. Would you agree with this? And so Jesus, not surprisingly, challenges and comforts us simultaneously. This is what he does. He challenges us the don't ask, don't tell. He just challenges that. He challenges the view of marriage that says, the goal of marriage is my personal, emotional, sexual fulfillment. That marriage is another consumer item to be discarded when it becomes unfulfilling. So Jesus speaks a hard word to those of us who are married, who every now and again just sort of glimpse at that glowing escape hatch, saying, well, that'd be nice. Every marriage on earth has irreconcilable differences. Can I get an amen from the married people? Yep. Edwin, ex exactly. I'll be available for counseling after. Um, <laughs> But the, what the Pharisee view of marriage was the woman existed to please the man. And does that view still exist today? Oh my goodness. We've, evangelical culture has embraced divorce for any and every cause too. And, and Jesus calls us against the self-fulfillment ethic. Back to Genesis 1 and 2. That your marriage is much more than just a legal agreement between two self-interested parties who agree to stay together as long as it's fulfilling for each. Now Jesus does not call you to stay in, in, in a marriage where you are abused, where you are deserted, where you are abandoned. He never commands divorce, but he permits it. But the vast majority of divorces I'm familiar with are when two people just get tired of living together. And Jesus calls that into question. Stanley Howaris, dude, says it this way. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are the primary institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption, oh, single folks, listen to this. For married folks, it's too late. We know this, but there's still hope for you. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry. And if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral, this moral assumption overlooks a critical aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being what it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. And I, can I just say, for me, in my house, that is true. I was told, purity culture told me there is a soulmate out there for me. And that that soulmate will meet all of my desires, and I just stay pure enough, then man, marriage comes and solves everything. And my friends, that is simply not true. If we do believe like the world is broken and fallen and people are sinful, well, guess what? That actually is true of the person you're married to and you. 
And so single folks, let, please get rid of any talk of soulmates. There is no such thing. There is wisdom and there is foolishness. But wisdom doesn't guarantee anything except the problems will be better problems than the foolish problems, but they'll still be problems. So underneath the debate about divorce is really a debate about your view of marriage. Would you agree with that? And that's what Jesus is drawing the Pharisees and us back to. So Jesus would speak a word of challenge to those of us who are married and who are in the thick of it. But the bigger thing is Jesus speaks a word of comfort to people who have been divorced. I had, or I've heard about two different people who have said, hey, please be safe, please be tender with this conversation because we can stigmatize people. And I just wanna say, man, there is, in the middle of all of this, women, if you have been abused, neglected, insulted, mistreated, abandoned, cheated upon, there is permission. Same with men. In our culture, it's an equitable, more equitable arrangement than in theirs. But there are circumstances where divorce is the lesser of evils. And there should be no stigma attached to that. Right, Jesus? And, and every situation's different, because you can, you can what about this thing to death? Well, in my marriage, this, this was mistreatment, or this was, okay, I, I don't know. All I know is that Jesus invited people to the Genesis 1 and 2 understanding, and then whenever he came across somebody who had not measured up, notice how he treats them. The thing that we don't really understand about Jesus is that Jesus took the shame of the so-called sexually immoral upon himself. So a, a woman who we think is a prostitute anoints his feet at dinner to the scandal of Pharisees all around him. And what does he do? He permits it. She lets down her hair, that was scandalous. She kisses his feet, that was scandalous. And then he blesses her and heals her and tells her that she can go in peace. The woman caught in adultery. Just the woman, not the guy. Just the woman. What's Jesus do? He starts drawing in the dirt. And what's he drawing? Who knows? But what a great thing to think about. But why is he drawing? To take away the shame from her so that the focus is on him. See, the work of Jesus isn't just forgiveness. The work of Jesus is also taking away our shame. And he does this by allowing himself to be shamed by drawing because of the fact that he draws near to us. Shame in the first century was what the community thought of you. Shame in, in the first century was losing esteem in the eyes of the community. And every time Jesus sat with someone who was thought was sinful or reached out to somebody or talked to somebody or shared a meal with somebody, he was shamed and was willing to do that over and over and over again so that no one would think that shame should be an obstacle to coming into his kingdom and thriving. I know, I'm sorry. And you're, you're totally fine to stay. Please don't, don't feel like you gotta rush out. We love baby sounds. They're the best. Unless you're on a plane for eight hours, and then maybe not, but. <laughs> Any questions on this? 
The goal isn't that you agree. The goal is that you wrestle. And so there are words of challenge, and then there are words of comfort. I want to address you if you've been divorced. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to justify it. Receive the Jesus that removes our shame and flourish. Tell the truth. We're honest in the kingdom. But you'll find no stigma here. Today, I I want us to take communion. Because very often, I don't know about you, but very often an issue like this, I think only concerns people who are considering or have been divorced. And I realize, no, no, no. This, This really deals with what it is to be married. And as single folks, what it is to consider being married. And so, this morning, I just thought we would receive the Jesus that takes away shame. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is not avoiding the topics that cause us the most pain. Sexual desire, lust, anger, contempt, how it is that we see another to whom we are united with. And so we just want to take the bread and the cup today in recognition that Jesus comes and removes the shame of society, of church, of self, so that we might enter into the kingdom in a brand new way, as a new creation, and practice what it is to be so. So friends, I'm going to pray for us, and then we just invite you around the room to go to the stations. If there's anything we can pray for, like that is a super important part of our time together. If there's there are issues in marriage, if there are issues with shame, if there are things that we can carry together as a community, we'd be honored to do that. There are pieces of paper you can write those out on. And also there is the bread and the cup. All are invited, and so we just open up time now for us to be together pursuing Jesus. And for those of you who are interested, we have a conversation that Kevin leads at 11 uh, that will talk more about this stuff. So let's pray. Father, we love you and we bless you and we thank you that you draw near to us even in our worst moments and that that isn't some pious religious talk but that's actually true and we see it all over the Gospels. And Lord, we um, just want to bring ourselves before you honestly today in all of our brokenness and all of our shame and all of our failure and we ask God that you would continually use the bread and the cup, the prayers that we pray to remind us of our identity, to call forth the hunger and thirst for righteousness. And God, that you would form us as a community that doesn't stigmatize people, but welcomes and is safe. So Father, to that end, we are grateful for the fact that you welcome us to the table. And so we come, thankfully, in the name of our Christ, amen.